Here in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40, let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that uh, if a man's brother dies, having a wife and he is childless, his brother should make uh, should should marry the wife and raise up children to his bro- brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her, and in the same way all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray that you would grant us wisdom in your word this morning such that we might leave here after the service is through and that we might ponder, meditate, think, inwardly digest your word, taking it to heart and living in its light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a president of a seminary, Union Theological Seminary, it's in upstate New York. It was a seminary established on this idea, on the infallible Word of God, in its founding constitutional statements it says that its goal is to promote the kingdom of Christ. Professors are required to affirm that they believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. But Serene Jones, president of Union Theological Seminary in New York, made the comments in an interview saying that she doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. She doesn't believe in the power of prayer. She doesn't believe in the literal heaven. And she doesn't believe in miracles. In addition to a few other things. In fact, during the interview, the interviewer said, you know... (laughs) I don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, and and I don't believe in a literal heaven. And she said, well, you sound like me, and so I'm a Christian minister, therefore you're a Christian too. This is what she said. When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. Jones said, crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive Godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? What a hopeless statement. 
What a foolish perspective. And that she should lead the seminary, a seminary where men and women are to be trained in the things of God, men entering into ministry, women into missionary activity. It's ridiculous. She was asked afterward, what what happens to people after they die? Then she, she says, well, I don't know. There may be something, there may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. Well, I'm here to proclaim this morning, your faith and mine is. It is. Her faith is certainly not in Jesus Christ. Her faith is not in God or, or the Scriptures. Her faith is not in, in any way in, in, to be reconciled at all with any kind of a Christian perspective or a biblical perspective on Life and on God and salvation and the gospel. She's not the only one, though. N.T. Wright, who is a, a well-acclaimed modern uh, theologian, says, I have friends who I am quite sure are Christians who do not believe in the bodily resurrection. The position that he takes is, frankly, counter-biblical. But this is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 9, verse 10, 10, verse 9. The gospel comes down to this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see how the Bible makes, how God in his word makes it clear that, that, that salvation is, bound, is tied to one's understanding of resurrection, that it is at least involved in one's calculation of who Christ is and what Christ has done. If Christ isn't raised according to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not saved. You're not a child of God. Christ is not your Savior. And you have no hope. You are lost in your trespasses and sins. And God will one day hold you accountable for them. The doctrine of the resurrection is pretty important, isn't it? It's vitally important. So what we understand about the resurrection and about our place in that resurrection is vital to the Christian. So we'll, we'll look at this text this morning. We know that the apostle, or, or that Jesus has been dealing with skeptics, scribes, chief priests, the Hellenists, Pharisees. They've all come to Jesus. They've questioned him. It began at the beginning of chapter 20 when Jesus cleansed the temple and they in protestation against his cleansing, said, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus asks them questions and then clarifies in the end that they are in fact wicked. These men have come to Jesus and their intent is to trip him up. And we saw that last week as they sent the spies with a second question. It says in verse 20 of chapter 20, in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So they question him, they flatter him first, and then they ask, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And, of course, Jesus' response is, you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you render unto God what is God's. 
expounded upon that passage last week and what that means for Christian citizens, both of the kingdom of God and uh, who live within this country, the United States of America. Well, Jesus mocks these men who have been bringing these questions as wicked men. They know to whom they're speaking. They know by what authority and power he is doing these things. They understand fully. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the upper room and says, we know what you do is from God. And yet we we desire to understand. And he asks questions that ultimately lead him to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are genuine questions like that of Nicodemus. And as he says, so must I enter the womb of my mother? He's not asking a sarcastic question. What he's asking is a question that he simply cannot understand unless the Holy Spirit gives him light to understand. And of course, Jesus then expounds further as to what the new birth really is. And he comes eventually to understand. He's there at the last day when Christ is crucified. He's a believer. It's one thing to have sincere questions, whereas we might look at the Bible and say, well, does this passage uh, correspond to this one in contradiction in some way? And, And what does this passage mean? And can you tell me about this speculative area of theology I haven't quite understood? And or can you explain this particular theological aspect of the character of God? Can you show me in the Bible where there is an explanation for its meaning? In those ways, questions are legitimate, seeking to understand more fully. But those aren't the questions these individuals are asking. They are seeking to trip up Jesus in controversial questions. Thus, this ridiculous question today in verses 27 and following. This is a worst case scenario. This is an unlikely possibility. This is almost an absolute impossibility but they come and they're asking and jesus is engaging and he is engaging as one who is in a position of authority and who will not be pulled into these controversial questions to such an extent that he will be he will be caught on the horns horns of of some dilemma and rather he answers wisely carefully thoughtfully he is the lord he knows truthful and best answer to these questions. Now the Sadducees have come to Jesus and they are a different group of people. They 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 disagree on the subject of what portions of the Bible are to be read and understood. They believed only in the Pentateuch and 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 after Joshua uh, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, they they then stopped and would go no further. Only the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in the the idea of of spiritual places and powers. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in heaven or an afterlife. Mr. Cranfield describes them in this way. They were an aristocratic party made up of high priestly and leading lay families of Jerusalem. They were wealthy and they were worldly. Their arrogance and harshness in the administration of justice were notorious. Conservative in doctrine, they rejected what they regarded as Pharisaic innovations, 
but their main concern was for the maintenance of their places of privilege and not for doctrinal purity. And so their question is based upon a biblical scenario. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And in similar fashion, I I was sharing the gospel with a friend a a, a while back, and we had shared with him some books. We had talked about Christ and about the necessity of salvation. We had talked about sin and its implications. We had talked about the judgment of God. We We had unfolded a number of things, and then he stopped. He took me to a passage in Scripture that says that we must believe in Jesus Christ, and if we refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, we'll be condemned to hell. We'll pass into utter darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he said, I reject the Bible and its claims. I reject the necessity of salvation on this basis. Because what about the person in the farthest reaches of the deepest jungle who has never heard about Jesus? I explained to him, well, they have the the law of God written upon their hearts. They see general revelation, which explicitly declares that there is a God. And they have rejected that God and have believed in other things. In their heart of hearts, they know what is right and they know what is wrong. They understand the law of God. They can lift their eyes and see the stars in the heavens and they, they receive the good bounty of God day by day as he's provided for them. They have never believed in him nor have they considered it him worthy to be praised, worshipped, and pursued. That wasn't enough for him, so he rejected Christ. these men are like that and what they're doing is they're taking a worst case scenario from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 and 6 where it says this when in in God establishing his civil law amongst his his people when he was ruling directly over them in theocracy uh, in his administration in that theocracy Uh, theocracy he determined that his people would live according to not only his moral law but civil law and ceremonial sacrificial law and in that ceremonial law this was established when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. God graciously providing for his people and providing to those who die at a young age, who are married, the opportunity to see their children and a heritage raised in their name. And so they take this particular question and they come and say, well, there are seven brothers, you see. And the first brother dies at an early age, he's married. And so the second brother fulfilling his legal obligation, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And they're saying to Jesus, look, look at how well we know the word of God. They're saying, look at the the minutia of the law of God that we understand. 
We understand it. You see, we've speculated about its, its deepest implications. We know the Bible. Remember that. Because Jesus will contradict that very shortly. It's a ridiculous scenario. Seven brothers, they all die without producing any child. Possible? Highly unlikely. It's it's intended to ridicule any intelligent individual who begins to engage with a question, ultimately, but their question assumes a great many things of which they are deeply, deeply wrong. Jesus' answer to the Sadducees speaks to the biblical validity of the resurrection and unbelief which denies it. And so he responds to three different things that they have miscalculated or or misunderstood. The first is they've, they've miscalculated and they don't believe. And they've miscalculated heaven and they don't believe. Men and women are still asking speculative questions out of a refusal to believe. And speculative questions are intended to mask hardened hearts which refuse to believe. Rather than engage with speculative questions, ultimately when sharing the gospel, simply redirect. Well, I'll come back and answer that question at a later time. But let's first deal with the claims of God and his word that we know. And that was my answer to my friend. Let's go back to your need of a Savior. Let's go back to your sin. Let's go back to the fact that you have heard about Jesus. Now what will you do? Can we not leave that brother, or that that human brother, that person, that theoretical person, who needs Christ somewhere or anywhere throughout the world to God and his sovereignty. These men, these Sadducees, have deeply miscalculated. They've miscalculated about the nature of heaven. They have miscalculated about the significance of the resurrection. They've, They've undermined the significance of the resurrection. They don't really believe in that it is significant, that it's adiaphora, things indifferent, things unnecessary. And concerning heaven, they have no idea. But if there's going to be any discussion about heaven, they make the assumption that, well, heaven will be just like the life that we see and observe here. It's culture, it's institutions, it's, it's administrations, it's, it's activities, it's, it's, it's traditions will all be the same. Well, no, none of it will be. They have miscalculated. Their assumption is that life in heaven will be the same as that in this world. Yet they they fail to know the word of God. They, They have failed to take in what God has said. There's a careful qualification too here that Jesus makes in reply to them, and I don't want to miss it. They have miscalculated, but Jesus says this. <clears throat> but that the dead are raised, or pardon me, back up. The, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given 
in marriage. He makes an interesting observation very quickly, very briefly, and and we might miss it if we're not careful. Counted worthy. Counted or considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. As he speaks of the resurrection of the dead, and as he speaks and contemplates heaven, and as he responds to them, he says, those who are counted worthy to attain to that life of which you pretend to be an expert. It's a careful qualification, isn't it? And what he's referencing is exactly what we were studying this last week in Bible study in Romans chapter 4, verse 22. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, that the Bible talking about Abraham there. Now Jesus says, counted worthy are those who will attain to that higher level of learning who will at- or, or of living, who will attain to heaven and of the age to come. And we're wondering, well, well, who are those who are counted worthy? I believe Romans 4 answers that. The words, it was credited to him, in reference to Abraham, were written not for him alone, but also for us, for whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. God will credit you, will count you worthy to attain to everlasting life and the resurrection of the dead unto life. If you believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you refuse to believe in the resurrection, you're not a believer. You're not saved. Christ is not your Savior. You cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection. Even while you cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not in some sense that you and I are children of the living God, which is true biblically, but in the sense that He is the only one begotten Son, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. There are cardinal doctrines for the believer without which we have no real faith. We can say that we know all sorts of things about Jesus and we can be experts in the Word of God. But if we don't believe what the Bible teaches in its entirety, we are not believers. There are explicit cardinal doctrines that cannot be simply tossed aside. For us, counted righteousness, credited righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Participation in the great resurrection will only come to those who believe. Let's make that clear. Heaven will be fundamentally different, but in in, in incomprehensible and unimagined ways, and these Sadducees simply don't understand that. But further than that, they need to act, uh, they need to know that 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 the Son of God is standing before them this very day, saying, "If you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no part in me. You have no life, and the promise of eternal life, you have no hope, no salvation." No standing before God.
Do you know heaven will be fundamentally different than what they are assuming? They have assumed that heaven will be just like life on earth. They have assumed that heaven and its institutions, administration, and traditions will be precisely the same as what they have experienced here in this world. And yet, Scripture tells us that heaven is infinitely different. Throughout Scripture, we are told that in heaven, our tears will be wiped away such that we will never cry and death will no longer anymore occur. That there will be no mourning, crying, pain, and the former things have passed away, will have passed away. That our knowledge of all that grieved us, that was bit, that we are embittered to, all that we have carried with us as suffering and of pain, and all those weary, that weariness of mind will be gone. It will no longer be part of our intellectual compilation. We are told in Scripture that Christ in heaven has prepared a place for us where there are many, many rooms. And if it weren't so, that he would have told us, and that it is true that his Father's house has many, many rooms, enough to contain all who are who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will live, we will, will, will abide eternally in God's house. In heaven, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus himself will reign in the center and God will be there with him. He and the Father and the Holy Spirit will be present in heaven and we will see and behold our God in the person of the Son of God. There before his throne, the tree of life will line the streets and from the throne will pour forth gushing water that will be our life and will fill us full of springs of living water forever and ever. And the Lord himself will be our light. He will illumine the heavens, and there will be no chaotic sea, and there will be no fearful blackness of space. Jesus even tells the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. If you die before the return of the Lord, You will be with the Lord in heaven, and you will never depart from his side. He will always be with you, and you will be with him. We are told that in heaven, moth does not corrupt, and rust does not destroy anything there, for there are no corrupting influences. It is a better country. It is a heavenly one, and God will prepare for us a city there. There we are told righteousness dwells. There we are told there is no sin. There we are told there is no continued corruption. There we are told that God will be our light and that he will reign over his people day by day and the gates of the city will be open. They will be safe, secure, and the glory of the Lord will inhabit that new place, the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, and anyone who does what is detestable or false will not, will not enter in, except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, there is much that the Word of God tells us about heaven. And I'm afraid that oftentimes as human beings we live in the hope that what we see and know and experience in this life will continue into the next. 
But that is not the case. And that should be your deepest comfort. Because after you've experienced life for a number of years and you've you've gone through cycles of decade after decade, you'll find, along with me, that this world is a hopeless one. A world in which the hopes of humanity are limited and will be dashed because humankind and, and humanism itself is turned on its head by mankind's own ignorance and foolishness and by our hatred of one another and our division over foolish things and of the wars and continued rumors of wars over deprivation of those who have a lot and those who have nothing and our consummate love, our all-consuming love of money, of resources, of of the love of mankind and the adoration of our of our peers, mankind is in love with himself. Mankind cannot stop looking in the mirror at ourselves, but trust and faith in Christ and in His provision of a new heavens and a new earth, and of the resurrection hope that we have in Jesus dashes all those hopes and puts them in their proper place and reminds us, shows us explicitly that our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in Christ Jesus and in the new kingdoms and the new heavens and the new earth and the coming kingdom of the Lord. Isn't it right that we are citizens who, who ultimately hope in the country yet that is far off? a far and green place where Jesus is and we will be with him one day. A far and wonderful place where the gates of heaven are opened and nothing false enters in. God himself dwells in the midst of its city and all of its citizens have equal and full access to him, have equal and full standing before God, each and every one counted righteous in the glorious Savior whom they worship. That is the focus. That is the privilege. That is the joy of heaven for the believer. And these Sadducees have miscalculated and they do not understand heaven and they do not understand Jesus Christ or the Messiah or God himself. The second thing that they run wrong with is is they have an ignorance of Scripture. They have miscalculated, but they also have an ignorance of Scripture. They know Deuteronomy. They they know the passage from Deuteronomy that that speaks to the necessity to marry one's uh, sister's wife if if she dies. They they understand that scenario, but but they don't understand so well. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. That's why Jesus takes them there. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 22, and in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, there are are parallel accounts of these passages. And and Jesus explicitly there says, you don't know the word of God. And here he says it implicitly as he takes them to the Bible. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, he understands that the core issue is not their really 
deep concern over seven brothers, all of whom had the same wife, and of whom who would be married to her in heaven. That's not their concern. They are simply trying to show by their question that they don't believe in the resurrection. And that's fundamentally what people are saying when they lift up that impossible question for you and for me. They are saying, I don't believe. And I, I won't believe. And only the Holy Spirit can break through unbelief. Only he can give faith and give them grace to believe. Jesus is saying, I I know what your core issue is, and your core issue is you don't believe the Bible, and you don't know the Bible. You say you don't believe in the resurrection, but you, you demonstrate in that belief that you don't know the word of God. He takes them to Exodus 3, verse 6, and explains that God is the God of man who is alive and in heaven and with the Lord. That's what he says. He says, There Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. God is speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. Moses has been tending the flocks, and he sees this bush burning but not being consumed. He walks over, and God speaks, and he says, uh, you're, you're standing on hollowed ground. R- remove your, your shoes from your feet. And then he says, I am, the, as Moses says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am, the, I, am, I am God. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. In the present tense of, the, uh, of, that se- uh, of the sense of how to say that. He's not saying, I was Abraham's God. I was Isaac's God. I was Jacob's God. I am the God. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus is saying the argument that was stated in that bush, and of course, Jesus was the person in that bush. Jesus was is the second person of the Trinity who appeared to Moses and spoke to him. And he says, What was said there from the mouth of God is that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. And if they are living with God, if they are alive with God, when Moses is standing there at the burning bush after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died physically, he is affirming to Moses that he is the God of the living. And Jesus makes that clear exposition. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. an extraordinary statement and exposition. And Jesus is saying all three are still alive in God. How can there not be a resurrection? When when you die, your spirit ascends to God. Your soul will ascend. You will immediately be confronted with your Creator. How can there not be a resurrection when our souls live and the body is placed in the grave with a hope of resurrection and of eternal life? in the body. And he's pointing out to them, you don't know Scripture. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Their assumptions of what it was was the same as if they were living on earth. Now, let me make this clear. Refusal to submit to God's Word is rebellion against God. It doesn't matter what you choose not to believe. If you don't believe in any one particular passage or any one thing versus any other, you're not a believer. 
You've rejected the word of God, and thus God will reject you. You see, the Sadducees didn't only have Deuteronomy 25, and they didn't only have other passages or Exodus 3, but they rejected altogether Daniel 12. In that wonderful prophecy of what will come, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Multitudes. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Isn't it true that God fashioned Adam from the dust of the ground? He caused dust molecules at their smallest level to to coalesce, to come, to coagulate, to form, and and he breathed life into that mound of clay, and, and Adam was a living and breathing human being. Eve was made from similar fashion. He took the rib from Adam and and he created and made Eve from it. Can't God? I heard heard from a a, a Christian minister who says, I think it's ridiculous that, that that, that the body of JFK buried out at sea, which is spread throughout all the seas all across the Atlantic Ocean, that God can one day reanimate those particular elements of a body that once was. The same God who created Adam from the dust of the ground can draw up the molecules of JFK and make him stand bodily before him, most assuredly. And he can do so with you and he will do so with me. Each of us, our bodies, will arise from the earth. And what has been created and made will indeed be reanimated and our body will be united with our soul and we will stand before the Lord. And for all those, in the words of Daniel, for all those who are in Christ and who have believed and have believed the word of God will be raised to everlasting life. And others who refuse to believe will be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. The third and final thing that these Sadducees have done is they've denied the power of God. Jesus points that out explicitly in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, and uh, Mark in chapter 12. Both are ex- uh, explicit parallels of this same passage. But, but I believe that, that their denial of the power of God is evident here in this passage too. Their God is too small. Or their their understanding of God is too small. Their understanding of God is not biblically based. They've not understood anything anything of the revealed power of God. Couldn't they go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where, where, where God creates mankind? Couldn't they see that from the dust of the ground God created Adam? And shouldn't faith lead them to even while they have questions about the resurrection, what it looks like and what will, un- what, will, what will be undertaken by way of process, how will this happen? Couldn't they say, shouldn't they say by, by Christian's use of reason and of, of rational thought, God caused the molecules of Adam to come forth from the dust of the earth, be formed into this body into which he breathed life, and Adam stood and lived before God. Can't God do that again? 
Will God not do that again at the resurrection? You see, their denial of the resurrection made no sense. It was a contradiction of what they said they believed in the Bible. Now, John Calvin says the resurrection is far beyond the grasp of human sense. We could not believe it until our minds rise to envision the unbounded power of God by which he is able to subject all things to himself. The resurrection is something that is extraordinary, and by faith we understand it, and by faith and belief in the word of God. Now, you may have questions about the resurrection, too. But the Bible is explicit and clear about the resurrection. And so I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Even scripture acknowledges that it is a mystery how it will be undertaken. But it goes on to say this is what will happen. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. May God enable us to firm, to hold fast, to be immovable, unable to be moved away from the reality and the future hope and God's promise of everlasting life in heaven and of the resurrection of the body and the reuniting of our souls with our body one day. You and I, we will together be with the Lord. We will stand before the Lord. We will rejoice in his presence. We will give thanks to God and proclaim his wisdom and his grace and his goodness and his love. And for all those who have refused to believe in the resurrection, my dear friend, I call you in light of God's word to turn away from your unbelief, to deny your unbelief based upon human reason and expectation, upon misunderstanding and ignorance, and rather turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and believe. Doesn't it make far more rational sense to believe in the one who created the heavens and the earth and in his account of what is to come than it is to rely on human reason, which is often wrong? which is limited and finite and based only upon our own observations, for we are powerless and contingent beings. He is the incontingent, eternal, sovereign, omnipotent God. Let us affirm what he has told us. Let us believe with all our heart and trust in him. For one day, even though our bodies will be consigned to the grave,
Our bodies will be raised at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God be praised. Let's pray.